Go go get 'em. Go get 'em go. 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 Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Let's get 'em. Go get 'em. Let's get 'em. Witches, Cozy's own friends, Ben Weber here. I'm thinking a lot about this election between Hillary Rodham Clinton and Donald J. Trump, and it's it's hard to hard to process. Um, you know, I think a lot about my people in my life who uphold me, who have shepherded me to where I am. And the the vast majority of these people, the people who I've loved, who I've counted as friends, who I've counted as, as teachers and mentors, have been women. They have all been fierce, strong, wise, powerful women. Uh, something about the way that I grew up something uh, about my brain chemistry, something about the way that I, I conduct energy has drawn me to countless fierce women. And of course, Lisa Lacasio, our guest today on Side D of Episode 50 of Cozy Zone with Ben Weber. We're, uh, we're in the altar room, of course. Lisa Lacasio is a, is a profound example of a fierce woman, someone who I will spend my life working to valorize, to uplift, uh, and work in conjunction with her, collaborate with her and, and so many people around me to dismantle the patriarchy that seeks to di- extinguish the lights of these powerful women, these fierce women. Um, thinking about witches, you know, it's Halloween fast approaching and thinking about the Salem witch trials. And and that is a, a very blatant example of, of patriarchy run amok, of, of 
male fragility, of male fear, trying to declare that women who uh, were not conforming to the, the mores and social norms of society must have possessed satanic powers. Um, you know, those, those people who, who persecuted those women are on, on the wrong side of history. Uh, I feel like Donald Trump's entire campaign is trying to uh, dismantle uh, the validity of Hillary Clinton because of her femaleness. Um, he, clearly, his actions uh, prove that he does not view women with a modicum of, of respect or, or humanity. Uh, and this is not a person who belongs in society, let alone to hold the, the highest office of the nation. Um, the story that Lisa will share with us at the end of this, this podcast is something that I, I actually hadn't really heard before in our, our long friendship. And it speaks a lot about witches and, and bullying. Uh, and, uh, you know, I I let it let it go without comment. There is there is really no uh, processing that happens after the story. But of course, this story has been sitting with me, and and I just want to to offer that using fear, succumbing to fear to to diminish those who we perceive are are different from us or are less powerful from us is is an unacceptable choice. We all. We all have fear. We all uh, reckon with fear on a daily basis. This I I know from personal experience. I find myself filled with with all sorts of fears all the time. But we cannot we cannot let these fears govern us. We cannot allow them to to alchemize into hate. Uh, we have to we have to confront our own fear, our own, our own weakness, uh, and, and do the work on ourselves before we, we bully, before we take advantage, before we, we leverage what small amounts of power and privilege that we possess to diminish the others around us because we're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of them. We're afraid of difference. We're afraid of, of not being loved. Uh, so I, I just wanted to say that, and I, I, I think, for me at least, this election is about uh, voting against fear and choosing choosing to have faith uh, in in the you know broken system of of capitalist imperialism that we have with elegance and and classiness, you know, as opposed to uh, a total war of buffoonery. Uh, bullying, uh, male fragility, uh, and I, I, I will not be be governed by a psychopath. So uh, I hope everyone is registered to vote. Um, please, uh, please reckon with your own fear. Please take care of those in your community. Uh, and if you, if there's someone you believe to uh, to possess some occult powers, uh, you know, maybe have a conversation with them, get to know them. Uh, you know, because we we need powerful people we need healers we need people to convene with the spirits especially in this tumultuous time uh friends cozy zone listeners dearest fans thank you for listening and i know you're going to enjoy episode 50 of cozy zone with ben weber lisa lacasio in the altar room 
side D. I mean, it seems to me that the, the system of academia is deeply, deeply problematic and flawed. Oh, yeah. So that, you know, so there is this sort of beautiful poetic task, as you're calling it, of, you know, diving into knowledge, gathering, you know, your very specific uh, line of expertise, and then, you know, uh, weaving together all sorts of conversations that have happened before. Like, that's yeah. a that's a really lovely thing, like talking, literally talking to your ancestors, literally mm-hmm. engaging, you know, making texts live again, making yeah. them like a living document. And And I think... I mean, I'm hearing that there is, that your stance, which makes a lot of sense to me, is that the personal, like, your personal experience, your human touch on this makes it worthwhile and gives it, gives it a frame and gives it meaning. Yeah. But there is also this, I can understand this sense of, like, oh, knowledge for knowledge's sake or, uh, like, a, a less personal uh Yes. Tice has a really good word for it that is escaping me. But, and he knows a lot more about the history of critical thought and theory than I do. But um, it's something like, it's not scientification, but it's something like that. But it's a, it's a point in the 20th century history of theory where you see the rise of the post-structuralists. And there's this attention to turning it almost into a science, this process of thinking about texts and literature. And what I encountered and really struggled with in the first years of my PhD were people who seemed to believe that such a thing was possible and to really want somehow the pursuit of the humanities to be this kind of sterile, containable, sense-making, scientific. And there's nothing wrong with science. I love science. I know very little about it, but like I would have deep respect for it. But it was – and I'm not saying this to smear any of these people. It was just so <coughs> opposite – the way that I had of thinking and feeling on these topics. And I felt intrinsically, as many people do, and I think particularly as many women do, not, oh, I have a different opinion and that's interesting. I thought, oh, I'm wrong. And that caused me a lot of pain because I thought, you know, I have an overachiever complex, eldest daughter complex, whatever you want to call it, wanted to be good, wanted to do well. I don't know if it's as simple as, oh, I wanted to be the best, but I definitely wanted to be among the best and I felt like maybe that just wasn't possible for me because I didn't I, I deeply didn't connect with these topics in this way I have a lot of respect for somebody who has this sort of endless recall and ability you have a pretty good recall oh yeah but I mean for like this this way of thinking about mm. literature you know just like throwing the names I always throw around who I know very little about ultimately but who started to show up in like the third year of my PhD and everybody talked about them that like, they were guys they knew. And I was like, who, what Deleuze and Guattari, oh, yeah. you know, like yeah. bandying these, these ideologies and, and ways of thinking about. And I, you know, here's the thing. Some of my way of thinking and feeling about this is itself retrograde because in the process of writing my dissertation, I learned and I saw, especially when I started doing artist residencies that I am in many ways, very academic. And there are many artists who are not. And I met, especially when I went to the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, I would meet these people and I would tell them I was in a PhD and they would just start like pissing on academe and just being like, it's disgusting. Like it makes you, you know, it makes nothing meaningful. I, I, they just, a lot of hate for Derrida and post-structuralists, you know, they just like ruined all of these things that were really important to me. 
And I found myself in this bizarro position of like defending the stuff that had given me a lot of trouble because I would always rather be on the side of the inquiry and the new way of thinking and never, I never want to turn away from anything. And academia has given me so much and has shored me up as an artist and a scholar. And that dual identity is obviously close to me because lots of people I know have dealt with the divide by just falling really deeply into their artist selves and negotiating with the other minimally. And I'd never wanted to do that. So I'm not at all rejecting this, um, but it was a process of acclimatization and adjustment that took me a long time to get inside. You are working with the occult mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. You're reckoning with your dreams. You're reckoning with an even more unseen part, right? So we have, uh, uh, you have a little bag. What, what's in that bag? It's like this, um, uh, oh, some herbs, some ceremony herbs. I have this smudge stick that I made that I've never burnt. Oh. Cedar. I think I'm going to burn it now. Great. Um, cedar brings the unicorn. Sage clears. Cedar burns and clears as well, but it brings the unicorn. What does the unicorn do for us? Well, you know, in medieval stories about the unicorn, the unicorn only appears in a moment of great purity and silence mm. in the middle of the woods, and that's when magic happens. I see. Um, so we have this altar here. I don't know. We haven't really talked about it, but it's it's just laden with rocks and crystals and abalone shells mm -hmm. and a, an owl candle your mother gave you. Oh, yeah. Tell me, Tell me about how you discovered the occult and how it it entered your life and how you reconcile it with your academic and creative life that is that is a complex story um okay so you know there's this vogue for witch stuff right now and there has been for a while and um i find it really interesting because my witchiness has really always been with me and in the wake of this renewed interest around it, I feel really lucky that that's always been with me. Um, it's a cliche, but really as far back as I can remember, the two identities that have like made sense to me are writer and witch. And certainly, you know, that's not all like super mystic, deep stuff. Like a lot of it has to do with like what you consume when you're a kid and what seems cool to you. I think I've told you the story when I was nine years old, or seven, I think I was nine, and Frank, Anne Frank, Jesus, there's a, there's a weird, there's a weird slippage, not Anne Frank, Anne Rice, mm -hmm. <laughs> sorry, R.I.P. Anne, I think you'd think it was funny, um, Anne Rice came to my town, <laughs> why did I do that, Okay. she's the Anne on the tip of my tongue, Anne Rice came to my town, and my parents are big Anne Rice fans, and so there was much excitement, in my house and I really feel like in the paper or something I mean it was the height of her fame I was nine in like 93 94 and so my parents were like okay you're gonna go with dad to meet Anne Rice and I was like what how could it be and my mom wasn't gonna go because she doesn't like crowds so my dad as I dressed up I dressed up like a vampire I had on a long crushed velvet cape and I in fangs and blood and we were allowed to skip this line that was literally around the block of crown books because I was a kid and I was in a costume. So you're allowed to skip to the front of the line and there was Anne Rice, just like a queen at this table. And she was so nice. 
it cost like it cost I forget how much but like between five and fifteen dollars per book to get signed and my dad brought a stack and then it cost twenty dollars if you wanted one personalized because she was just signing her name and so we picked a hardcover I forget which one but like a pretty hardcover and had her sign it to my mom also Anne and I think about this all the time now because that established absolutely my sense of what a writer's life was like and it is hilarious because that is not what writers lives are like not yet not yet and also that was a special moment and anyway i think about it also with my witch identity though i mean of course i grew up in a house with parents who read comic books and loved you know sci-fi and horror and fantasy and i loved fairy tales and mythology and so the idea of being this like wise magic woman which is also how i always thought of my mom i mean my mom has always had like a strong witch quality um that all made super sense to me and beginning at a very early age i was really critical of the catholic upbringing i was receiving which is really better described as a lapsed catholic upbringing because like i went to church and i did the sacraments and i actually liked church and i found the sacraments interesting but i don't i've never felt deeply that like when i sin there's a black mark on my soul and i've never really felt deep shame or guilt in the traditional catholic way as, as indeed i think my father did in his upbringing so my parents wanted to give us a spiritual grounding and my mom had converted to marry my dad but they weren't at all doctrinaire about it and they had both gone to catholic school and had like a lot of bad catholic school things happen so they were pretty like you know they, they were kind of in and out of it also every time we went to mass they would just cry the entire time the entire time and then when mass was over just like stop so i so i mean i had this great sense of the sacred in my upbringing not just because of church but you know we had buddhas in my house my mom had a lot of like abundant mysticism some of it eastern and i i was obsessed with ancient egypt when i was really little that was like my first obsession was just egypt 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 there's a poster that i made in second grade where i talk about how i'm going to be an egyptologist and go excavate under the sphinx and find like a new tomb that nobody's seen before of a female pharaoh and it was all there in that first idea so then i was like 10 11 and I really wanted to do real magic. I just remember being really preoccupied with this. I was like, okay, yeah, I get magic as a metaphor. I get magic as within you. I get God works in mysterious ways. I want to, like, make some shit float. And I really believed that this was possible. And so I did all this research. And I remember the classified ads in the back of Rolling Stone magazine. And there was, like, a, there was a correspondence course in Vermont you could send away for in wand work. And I was like, oh, yes, that's what I want. And I took it to my parents. And my parents have always been very generous with me and always helped me get what I wanted. And uh, my, they were like, no, we're not going to pay for this for you. And I was, and I mean, it was totally legit. I mean, it was also probably an adult level course. And, you know, who the hell knew who was doing this correspondence course in Vermont? But um, I remember, you know, that year asking for some, like a chalice and a wand for my birthday. And, I think that's around, there was a great esoterica section at my local bookstore, Barbara's Bookstore in Oak Park, and I would read The Witch's Almanac. My dad had this book from his childhood called The Encyclopedia of Demonology, which was just about demons, and it was like a, I don't know if it was a reproduction of an ancient book or if it just looked like one, but like I loved that thing and poured over it. And it made me feel, I was never scared. It made me feel really happy and like, like, like I was touching something and seeing something that wasn't visible to other people, but it always been there with me. I should mention... Um, you know, I, I was an epileptic and I had benign childhood epilepsy, which I now understand is very rare and affects like 70% of people. It affects our women, which I didn't know at the time. 
and it comes on when you're about seven, which is what happened to me, and it leaves when you hit puberty, which is what happened to me. And so for like two years of my life, I was gone every 10 seconds. Sorry, I was gone every two minutes for 10 seconds. So I was missing a lot. And that's also the year that I started to have a lot of trouble in math. I had a teacher who had been recommended by parents because she had an epileptic daughter. I remember going up to her and saying, I'm sorry, you know, I just really don't understand the math. And I think it's because of my seizures. My seizures were easy to miss because I, I would just go and come back. And she said, copy off your neighbor. And so that was pretty much, that was when I started to understand how much the world was going to help me. But, uh, you know, I would have ecstatic experiences with my seizures. I would see things that you could call hallucinations. I've never really thought they were hallucinations. I would see through people. I would see people who weren't there. I would see things that other people couldn't see. And I was conscious. I remembered this. I only ever had two grand mal seizures, but those were also ecstatic, and one was brought on by uh, strobe lights. My parents took me to see the ice capades. Christy Yamaguchi was my hero. I was so excited. And I remember just sitting there in the dark being so excited. And then the strobes came up. And the next thing I know, I'm in a concrete bathroom. My parents are throwing water on me and just crying. Because when you have a grand mal seizure, you only seize for about 15 minutes, but you're, you're out for like two hours. Anyway, so sixth grade rolls around. I got all this witchy backstory. I've got my, my wand and my chalice. I'm trying to do some little spells. I'm very like engaged in it. And um, I have a best friend who I love more than anyone in the world. Her name's Patricia. Patricia is just so cool and beautiful and smart in ways that I'm not and skinny. I never felt skinny, although I was, I was not, not skinny. I was just, you know, she was, she was this person onto which I projected so much. And I also did just really love being with her. And uh, I started to tell her about my witchiness. And I remember at her 11th birthday party, must have been 11th, maybe 12th, she, um, I, I told, like, all the girls there. I was, like, so excited about this. And um, I had started to notice things were starting to change. Like, other girls seemed to suddenly know how to dress cool. And I just, like, I had never really thought about clothes. I wore, like, whatever my mom, you know, chose for me. And my mom dressed me well. But, you know, sweatshirts and leggings, little girl things. And other girls are suddenly wearing, like, jeans and bell bottoms and going to the limited two. And I didn't even know what that was. And their hair is always really straight. And popularity as a concept is emerging suddenly. And I mean, I'd always been like weird in school, but I'd been kind of like this allowed weirdo. I say that and then that's not really true because I was bullied really brutally in kindergarten for insisting I was a cat, Venus, a cat princess from Venus. And then I was bullied pretty brutally in second grade for having epilepsy because the teacher, same one who told me to copy off my neighbor, showed the class a film strip from the 50s of people in convulsions and said, this is what Lisa has. So nobody would talk to me. So I, I knew that if popularity was a thing, insofar as I understood it, I wasn't going to be on the right side of it. But I didn't anticipate what happened, um, which was Patricia made a very savvy, I mean, chillingly savvy unilateral move and was like, Lisa is a witch. And she's creepy. And she hurts animals. And she does weird blood rites. And I don't want to be her friend anymore because she's a creepy, evil witch. You know, <clears throat> this was about 10 years before we suddenly had this body of knowledge about the culture of aggression among young girls, adolescent girls. Nobody was thinking or feeling in 1996, at least not where I was, like, huh, 
maybe this is pretty fucked up. It was a lot of, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. That's just kind of what happens at this age. And I remember that year, sixth grade. I mean, absolutely, it was the most galvanizing experience in my life. It made me who I am today. Everyone, with the exception of like one or two people, was so horrible to me. And they took such elaborate glee in it. And I'm sorry. You know, when Mitt Romney was running for president and that shit came out about how when he was in high school, he and some other good old boys held down a long-haired boy in their, high, in their high school and cut off his hair. And he was obviously the only gay boy in the high school. And Romney claimed not to remember that. You know what? You claim not to remember that or what happened to me. And you were part of it. I, I'm going to call bullshit on that for the rest of my life. Because I forgive everybody for being cruel children. And children are elaborately cruel. But I'm not going to forget that. Uh, I mean, the worst part, worse than being abandoned by my best friend, worse than watching her aggregate 25 or 30 girls who had also always been kind of pleasant, friendly, if not actively my friends, but many of them were my friends, into a Greek chorus that would dog me in the halls. And no matter what I did, I mean, I felt so bad. I thought, okay, I'm just not dressing cool. I'm not cool. So my mom and I went out and bought all these new clothes. And it was like, why do you have new clothes? What's wrong with you? Do you think you're special? And Anytime I would wear anything different or try to be different because I thought it would make them like me again, they would follow me down the hall and just whisper, you know, like, why is she doing that? What's wrong with her? She's so weird. And of course, you know, I'm 11, 12 years old. I'm starting to notice boys. I have crushes on boys. The boys, I mean, admittedly, probably mainly idiots, idiocy, but it was just sort of like, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, look at her. Look at that fucking freak. Of course, nobody was swearing. At the time, I thought swearing was the mark of a truly ur urbane society. I have many diary entries from that year where I fantasized going to a party in Cool Oak Park. I live in River Forest, where people, I was certain, would swear. Um, <clears throat> it was so intense, and it was so real. And I remember every, every day that year coming home and just being like, I'm so glad that my home exists. I was really lucky because when I was at home, I limbically disengaged and I could relax and I could be with my parents who were wonderful to me. And my mom really sympathized with what I was going through. My dad, I think, was sympathetic, but also like felt a lot of like sympathetic pain and had trouble kind of thinking about it. And I remember he would just always tell me that I should like ignore it, you know, and keep my head up and not engage with it. And I really wanted to do that, but it was really hard because, um, you know, everyone in the school just had it out for me and took, it was just the pleasure they took in it. It would have been one thing. It would have been bad enough if they, if they had just, you know, done it because they were like angry at me, but it was more, they just took like this glee, like pulling the legs off a bug. And so then after some months of this, um, I had written a short story that won this big regional award that was about a girl standing on the edge of a black lake and, and like she had to jump in and swim because if she didn't, someone was going to get her. But she knew the lake was like toxic and would kill her. And so it wasn't very long. It was just a story of this character standing there trying to hype herself up to get in and she dives in and it's actually fine. She swims to the other side. So after I had that experience, which was a lot about dealing with my feelings about what was happening to me at school, I thought one day when I was feeling really sad and I had I'd come into study hall, we couldn't go outside that day because it was too cold for, for recess, and I sat down 
either in a table or in a circle on the floor where all of these other girls, I guess I just still hadn't gotten it at that point. I kept thinking like if I just wear something different or I just am different, they'll, they'll be nice to me again. And I sat down and without saying anything, like they had planned it, like they had drilled it, every girl, and there were like 12 of them, just rose as a circle and moved to the other side of the room. And so I was pretty shaken. And I remember I took out my notebook and I wrote a note to Patricia. And as God is my witness, I never intended for it to reach her. It was just a vent. It was just like, I am so hurt. And I hope something really bad happens to you. And I feel really bad and I'm really hurt. And, you know, you made me feel this way. And, and I, I did feel better after I wrote it. And I folded it up. And I made the perhaps not ideal. But I, I just, it didn't even occur to me that she would ever see it. Because I was just going to put it in my backpack and throw it out later. I, wrote her, I folded it up and wrote her name on the front like it was a note. And I guess I've always had a certain faith in the object. So I think I, that's probably why I did that. The fucking thing fell out of my bag. Boy, I don't think he was being hostile. He was just hapless. I was like, oh, this is for Patricia. Gives it to her. She was so pleased. I remember because I was somehow near, like it all unfolded in front of me and she was like, here it is. Here's the ammunition. Here's the reason why all this was right. She was able to turn on the waterworks and feel threatened pretty quick, but I saw the look on her face when she unfolded it. She was like, yep, there it is. Now it's, now it's real. Now I, I have proof that she is who I think she is, who I've been telling everyone. And there were these two other girls. One of them was my cousin. And they were like, we're going to be Patricia's attorneys. And they, you know, they strode off to the principal's office, so proud of themselves. And uh, I hadn't signed it. Everybody, it was pretty clear, but a teacher came in and asked me to like, give her a handwriting sample. I remember trying to alter my handwriting, which is kind of hilarious. And then um, I think I lied. You know, I said, I don't know. I don't know what I said. I just couldn't, couldn't really confront it. I felt so alone. And um, my, I don't know if it was that day or the next day, but my mom came to pick me up at school and Patricia's mother confronted her in the parking lot and called her a raunchy liar on the basis of this. And so it was just like, it was just clown town. Cause it was like, I'm sorry. Like I've been, I've been the victim of like this, like coordinated plan of attack by like most of the school for like seven months. And now I'm like, I'm the baddie here. Parents bought into it. Parents seem to believe that a gentle sixth grader was some sort of dark witch, you know, working, working with the spirits. I had kids whose parents pulled them out of my classes. Um, I did get my sit down with the principal who ultimately didn't do anything, but just told me like, you know, like, don't, don't do that. I remember my dad was mad at me and he was like, you know, I told you that you have to be able to like hold your head up and just ignore this stuff. And I was like, you know, sure, everybody. And sure, I shouldn't have done that. And I'm really sorry that she read it. And of course, I'd never wished her any actual bodily harm or harm at all. But like, isn't it funny how those teachers who I now realize had must have had some notion that I was being ostracized maybe they didn't know why but I have friends who are middle school teachers now and teach as a kid I had this faith like they just don't know they're grown-ups they're in their grown-up world you notice things these teachers that I trusted like my favorite teacher was the the one who was like okay I'm gonna need you to give me your handwriting you know they were just like on it in a second and I was pretty sad I was pretty sad for a long time but that was a big turning point in my life and I hid my witchiness a lot after that 
But things started to get better. That fall, my friend Erin moved into my school district. And that was the most, I mean, I, I, I loved her at first sight. And it was also the most beautiful opportunity to just be like, you know what? Fuck all of you. Seriously. But I didn't have the wherewithal to, to feel that until the next year. Because I went to Interlochen Fine Arts Camp the next summer. And I met all these people. And I was like, wait, I've never met these people before. And they're treating me normally. There's nothing about me on my surface that is wrong. And here are these girls from all over the country and the world. And they're just like, oh, hey, here, here's another person. I was like, wait a second. And so then I, got, I came back in eighth grade, and I was angry. And there was the beautiful world of goth and sex and death waiting for me and the Smashing Pumpkins and Marilyn Manson and wearing my spiked collar every day. And I was just like, you are all a fuck. <laughs> you are all a fuck. <laughs> you are all a bunch of fucking norms. And so since then, I mean, the witch path has been real up and down. Like, freshman year of high school, me and my boyfriend were real, real ninth and tenth graders. I remember trying to, like, celebrate Samhain with, like, a pomegranate and some candles and, like... What's that? <clears throat> it's, like, Wiccan New Year. It's Halloween. Okay. okay. Um, I, never, I never got down with, like, a coven or a group. It's always... And I can't, I can't claim to follow any ideology. It's always been my own really particular path of inquiry. I always had an altar in high school, like candles and a vessel of water. Um, I didn't know how to do tarot then, but I always had this really strong vibe on the star, the, the major arcana card. So that was always on my, on my altar. And my altar, I would just let these candles, like, you know, wax out everywhere and just destroyed all this stuff with all this wax. And then in college, I obviously didn't have altars because you can't have candles in your New York City apartments. And well, you, I mean, maybe in the dorm. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, though. Like, I mean, I always kind of had little collections of stuff and right, right, right. spiritual feelings. But I will also say in college, and especially with you and Axel, in college I came to feel that if you were an intellectual person and you were even agnostic, you were a little intellectually suspect. Hmm. You and Axel and I had some real fights in college, and I would say some maybe kind of like weird things, but I remember just like laughing once because I was like, I just know that God is real. And the two of you were like really offended with me and like got mad at me and were like, you know, you can't, you, you, you don't have some like special ability to know. And I was never, it's never been about making anybody else think what I think, right. but I've always had this really deep personal connection to this stuff. Yeah. And you know, for God's sakes, you're right, you know. I am sorry for that. It's okay. It's a it's a preoccupation of a very young person to want to forge their own path. Yeah. And that depends on what you're forging against. And yeah. mine was just a little bit weirder and more syncretic. Yeah. That was a big word for me in my college application was syncretism. Mm. And so, I don't know, the full bloom of the witch self really comes into play now in my life in about the last two years. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would assume, oh, living in California, you're really close to the esoteric and all this new agey stuff. And that's true, but it, it really didn't have to do with much of a response to that. It was a very strange thing because I felt like as I began to come closer to it and more interested in it and just to try to establish a daily meditation practice, um, I became aware of this huge community of this stuff that exists out here and became like a significant part of my life. I, I got attracted to meditation first and then to like rocks and crystals and i remember being I, I mean i have this joke i'm sure you've heard but like uh once you get once you get into rocks and crystals you can never move east to the mississippi um but i guess we're gonna see um but yeah so i was really into rocks and crystals that was like early 2015 and and 
meditation and also my Pilates practice were really like deepening my sense of like power and strength and all of these things that had been really natural to me when I was a kid just came back like having an altar and burning candles and then of course I've I've taught myself and taken classes on like cards and divination and so that's like I love I love that it's this sort of endlessly abundant field of inquiry I can always there's always more to learn but you know my friend Frances the photographer came to visit and she she's trying to sort of get into this and she wants to do a project about witches and she was like wait how do you know all this like where did all this come from and it, it made me feel really good because I don't think that I know that much particularly but I told her this story and she was like, so it was just always in you? Like it was just always something you were doing? It, there wasn't a point at which you were like, I gotta be a witch now? And I was like, no. I mean, sure, a lot of it is derived from things that I've read and consumed, but it is, it is very close to my intrinsic self. And to be able to feel the world that way, I have, I've only felt more powerful and more empowered. And I've actually had some really like weirdo wig out things happen certainly in the last year with like my magic practice. So like, it's definitely as far as I'm concerned, real. What are some of those things? Um, you know, like certain things, sorry, my headphones here, certain things in the cards, like, you know, you can read the cards. I tend to not read them as directly, you know, like predictive, but like sometimes they will be like uber predictive. It'll be like that day. Um, or like certain spell work things. I don't know. I made this like money abundance charm spell like a couple weeks ago and things have been pretty haywire <laughs> since then. Also, I mean, a lot of it has been for me like being near to and conferencing with people who I consider experts in the field. So there's a lot of people in LA. There's um, Baja, the white witch. Her last name is escaping me, but if you look up White Witch of LA, that's that's who she is. Um, and Sarah Faith Gottsdiener and Marcella Crawl and uh, Billy Martin, who is a root worker in New Orleans, who made my, my witch bottle there that you see on the window. Mm -hmm. um, Billy is a trans man, and in his past life, he was my favorite author when I was 14, Poppy Z. Bright. And to re-encounter this subjectivity, obviously different, in a different role that kind of root worked me as a, as a kid with these sexy, bloody vampire stories that were everything to me and that opened up the, my world of imagination and sexuality. The fact that I can now be in touch with him and ask his advice and you know hire him to, to do some work for me, that's incredible. And even just by being close to that and observing what he does from a far distance and how he talks about it, I've, I've learned a lot about how to work in these ways. Thank you so much for listening to Cozy Zone episode 50. Lisa Lacasio in the altar room, side D. Please join us for the thrilling conclusion of Lisa Lacasio's Cozy Zone next time. That'll be side E. And check out all of the social media fun. The Cozy Zone Foundation on Facebook. Like it. See you next time. Occasionally it's a lovely thing to be nosy in somebody's cozy zone. So please snuggle up sweet. A beautiful thing is cozy zone. <laughs>